This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. We'll talk at the streets as you may go solo. Episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 70, Epistemology. I am your host. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English, Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining uh, joining us today for the first time is Dr. Nathan Gilmore, who is a, what, are you assistant or associate? I am assistant assistant. professor, and I've already started looking at promotion paperwork. There you go. Dr. Gilmore. That's the next thing towards which I shall strive. A doctor of about 36 hours uh, at the time we record this. So congratulations, Nathan. Thank you. Uh, Also joining us is Professor David Grubbs, who is a (laughs) professor of English at uh, Central uh, Christian College in McPherson, Kansas. So I'm here with the doctor and the professor. I feel very uneducated. <laughs> <laughs> How you doing, uh, David? Oh, uh, I'm good. Are you as, are you as filled with envy? Papers for that title. Are you are you as filled with oh. envy as I am? Oh yeah, I'm 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 like a big old green monster right here. <laughs> of course, Nathan has been studying at UGA since 1974, so... <laughs> That's true. This was a long time coming. Uh, right. Right. As I understand it, back when he started, uh, you know, they were still doing computers on tapes, reel-to-reel. I think Robert Park was actually the uh, head of the department when he started. Yeah, he had to withdraw from uh, from Nathan's committee when uh, he went emeritus. <laughs> When he died a hundred years ago. <laughs> man, oh man. <laughs> we kid because we're jealous. We kid because yeah. we envy. Mainly. <laughs> so we'll have to do a show at some point about Nathan's dissertation. If, uh, oh, yeah, if, I, I can, if Grubbs yeah. and I are capable of understanding it. I've, I've actually got that stored on the web space so I can send you guys a link to it. Sounds good. That'll probably be a summer episode, because uh, I doubt I will have time to read it before then. Right. <laughs> mm. But today we're talking about epistemology, and before we get there, we need to do our normal housekeeping stuff. Do we have any listener feedback? Uh, a lot of listeners sent very kind well wishes before the dissertation and congratulations afterwards, so thank you listeners for that. Uh, as far as feedback on the content of our episodes i'm trying to think have we gotten anything back on the sidekick episode well no and part of that is because i was uh, i forgot to post the show notes until last night so oh that's right that's right okay so no no, worries no i don't think we got anything on that yet nobody emailed us either okay uh i don't think there's anything oh the only thing on the blog is a thing about what it was like when you started uh (laughs) grad school in 1999 Yes, not 1974, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> how, old, how, old would they, how old would you be if you started grad school in 1974? I guess you'd be uh, 25 years older than you are. Yeah, yeah. So, so. 70. 
watch it now. <laughs> man, oh man. As I as I said, I kid I kid because I envy. Ooh. I'm at the point in mine where I'm not sure I'm ever going to finish. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of where I was for about two years. So I. <laughs> yeah, so I know you're I, not having. You're I, not having I, any I hope you do better than me. <laughs> All right. Mm. Well, uh, as I said today, uh, today we're talking about epistemology, and since that is a word that borders on philosophical jargon, we should probably begin by defining precisely what we mean by it. David, what questions are we asking when we talk about epistemology, and how is the study of epistemology related to the study of metaphysics? Mm. Well, like most of our philosophical jargon, we uh, we get this uh, this term uh, well indirectly from the Greeks, um, even though it wasn't used in English until uh, the 19th century. Uh, the first half of the word, the episte part, epistem part, um, episteme is the Greek word for knowledge. And, of course, we've got the, the ology tacked on the end, uh, which has to do with, with, with discourse, with talking about it, with uh, the, the discussion and debate about a particular notion. So, so uh, epistemology and its etymology is discourse about knowledge, discourse about uh, what is known. And, and those are precisely the kinds of questions that epistemology asks. What is knowledge? How do you get it? How do you know you have it? Um, How do you know that you know that you know that you have it, as I like to uh, say in my introduction to philosophy class? (laughs) Without a shadow of a doubt? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So Um, you can really go down a rabbit hole when you start examining that. Well, yeah, and and that's 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 precisely what the history of epistemology is: is uh, finding out uh, how well how deep the rabbit hole goes. Can I can I can I make matrix references still? Can I mean that was back in nineteen ninety nine. Remember, our listenership is generally in their thirties, David. So we're cool. All right, all right, cool. <laughs> so that's that's not stale yet. But yeah, epistemology is is all about that particular rabbit hole. Um, what is knowledge? How do how do we how do we obtain it? How do we know that the knowledge we have is true knowledge? What does it even mean to say that something is true knowledge? So all of those are epistemological questions. All of those are questions that philosophers uh, have for you know several centuries felt like they needed to address before they could move on to anything else. Um, how it connects to metaphysics, which metaphysics is the uh, the branch of philosophy that's concerned with what is um, uh, being, what what kinds of things can be said to be, in what ways. Um, the uh, the ability to even know the answers to that question and how do we know if they were right answers and all the rest of that uh, that that lies at least for us, that lies before metaphysics um, as, as, as a conversation that has to be had. Uh, it seems, however, that uh, if, you, if you look at the history of philosophy, uh, and well, in the, past, you know, in the past few centuries, philosophers, at least to me, seem to be epistemology junkies, and they don't ever get around to metaphysics because they're too busy 
uh, delving the rabbit hole yet deeper. It depends on the philosophers you read, right? I mean, cer- certainly, like, Leibniz and Berkeley go straight into metaphysics without dealing that much with epistemology at all. And, and, and certainly the epistemological turn is something, as we'll discuss, that happens during, during the late Renaissance, early Enlightenment. And before that, right. yeah. if, and I know I'm scooping you here, Nathan, so don't let me say too much, but, but before that, <laughs> you, you, would, you would do metaphysics before you would ask epistemological questions. Right. Right. Is there anything else you'd add to that, Nathan? Yeah, I mean, I, only to say that, you know, the strong focus on epistemology comes out of a historical moment where a lot of the things that were once very certain are all of a sudden up for grabs and disputed. So the quest yeah. for a certain knowledge uh, isn't something that is unrelated to unchanging human drives. Uh, but it's also not always the primary focus of philosophy, right? And we'll get more to that later. I would I would add that the relationship between epistemology and metaphysics is that epistemology you, you must in, nowadays anyway you must invoke epistemology in order to suggest metaphysics, but you also mm-hmm. have to invoke mm-hmm. it in order to whatever the opposite of suggest metaphysics is suggest that metaphysics is impossible. Right. So suggests right. that there is no a priori knowledge, for example. So you, you right. see, you see, as we'll discuss in the Enlightenment, people invoking epistemology on both sides. Right. Well, um, oftentimes, as I said, people talk about epistemological questions as beginning in earnest at the end of the Renaissance and the beginning of the Enlightenment. But I, I suspect, at least to some degree, that that dis- division is artificial and unhelpful. Nathan, what sorts of epistemological views do we find in the ancient world? And I will give you two minutes to cover everything from Plato to Aquinas. (laughs) (laughs) The the stopwatch has started. Oh, well. I'll give you three high points. Uh, High point number one, you've got Plato in the Republic talking about goodness as something that actually illuminates intelligible objects. The knowledge of intelligible objects in turn... Uh, giving rise to the knowledge of physical objects uh, and physical objects being those things that are best known in relationship to the objects of intellect and in turn goodness itself. Now Plato is reacting here against a view of knowledge that he assumes is prevalent in Athens uh, that holds that not even physical objects themselves but rather discourse about physical objects, one more removed from the intellectual object, is actually what counts for good knowledge. Now, the other side of that, of course, is in the dialogue, the Meno, uh, or the Meno, depending on how you pronounce that Greek consonant. Uh, Plato digs into an idea of knowledge that all intellectual apprehension of reality is already inherent in the person, and to demonstrate this famously... Uh, he brings over a slave boy and talks him through a geometric proof and says, well, you know, this is a kid who doesn't have any formal education in mathematics, and yet simply by reasoning, we're able to show that he has knowledge. So for Plato, the true knowledge is always intellectual. It always has to do with mathematical relationships, uh, and it is inherent in the person. Now, taking a shift from there to Aristotle, Uh, we get an idea that knowledge 
comes first and foremost through observation, but not in the modern scientific sense in which uh, you simply look for patterns out there in the world, but rather for Aristotle, the form, um, or really, I mean, the purpose of the thing, the telos, uh, is always in the particular object, and that's why philosophers talk about entelechy, the telos being in the thing, as a particularly Aristotelian doctrine. So, for instance, for Aristotle, it's not that you have to observe 700,000 horses before you see the form called horse, but rather the form called horse is in any given horse out in the world, but there is no transcendent horse form that is separate from any given horse in the world. All right. High point number three, and I'm probably past my two minutes. I haven't been watching the stopwatch. You have Sorry. as much time as you need, Nathan. I was just joking. I figured as much. I would, I would never <laughs> dare to curtail the doctor. <laughs> so high point number three, jumping ahead uh, dang near a millennium and a half. Uh, when we get to Thomas Aquinas, uh, the beginning of his theory of human knowledge is it always comes through the five senses, or to use the Middle English phrase, the five wits. Uh, and so for Thomas, uh, you have a strong sense that there is a spiritual revelation or illumination that happens so that we can come to saving knowledge. But all of our apprehension of the physical world comes through the processes of reason, which in turn comes to us through those five senses. Uh, so really, I mean, what Aquinas is doing, like I said, a millennium and a half after Plato and Aristotle uh, is bringing the five senses, observation, things like that, and the intellect insofar as mathematical reasoning is possible, and the spirit insofar as the content of Christian doctrine, especially the Trinity, is a matter of revelation. All three of those things fuse together to become one comprehensive theory of knowledge. Now, is this his main concern? Not by any means. As Michael said earlier, uh, you really have to have a Thomist metaphysics in place before that Thomist epistemology makes any sense. So, for instance, uh, we have to hold that the functions of the mind are metaphysically analogous to the real structure of the universe before we can say that we can have anything like reliable knowledge. Uh, that becomes, you know, a very, very different emphasis uh, once we get into the Enlightenment, but we'll talk about that here in a bit. David, what did I miss in that very, very rapid survey? Oh, the only high point I might point to is uh, Augustine. Okay. And the uh, uh, what in him uh, is the necessity of divine illumination for at least some kinds of knowledge. Um, I think possibly all knowledge. Uh, I'm I'm a little rusty on my memory there, um, but but that idea that that that's some some kinds of knowing, some kinds of ideas require uh, a mind outside of us uh, that can in some way impose uh, impose itself, um, or to put it another way, can grace us with uh, mental equipment that's that's uh, beyond. Uh, what we've normally got, uh, that particular epistemological move becomes uh, very powerful in, in uh, particular wings of the Reformation. So, right. Yeah. 
Anyway, other than that, Michael? Well, uh, virtually everyone agrees that there is a sea change in epistemology beginning with the work of the French mathematician and philosopher Descartes. Uh, David, what did Descartes say and do? And once you discuss Descartes, move on and talk about the other rationalist and idealist views during the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, if you don't mind. Okay. <laughs> um, Descartes, uh, which, you know, it would be a guy named Rene who, who you know, throws everything off balance. Um, Rene Descartes, Frenchman, born in 1596. Uh, he is... Uh, Really, kind of a kind of a private individual. He's he's not like um, most of the philosophers that we've talked about, or sorry, Nathan has talked about thus far, uh, have been um, thinkers who were plugged into some some kind of uh, well, an academy uh, or a university, some kind of uh, school system. Uh, Descartes apparently was just sort of a freelance smart guy. Um, not that he wasn't in demand. He was so in demand that in the end he, he, he eventually died because he decided to – well, he, he, uh, he was persuaded to go be the, the, the pet philosopher of the Queen of Sweden. And unfortunately, the mornings in Sweden are cold and hard and uh, Rene couldn't hack it. So I guess that proved so. the external world existed anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he didn't need to go kick a rock. And see, um, that's a much smarter joke than I had, Michael. I, I have the song Minnie the Moocher in my head now. <laughs> <laughs> he went to teach for the king of Sweden. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hi-dy, hi-dy, <laughs> yeah. There's a anyway. contemporary tell reference you for you, Nathan. the Moocher. <laughs> Are you sure you didn't start graduate school in 1924? <laughs> <laughs> okay, proceed, David. Sorry. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, that's Descartes. Uh, what did he say? Well, before we get to say what, what he say, we have to get to what he did before he said it. Um, he decided that he was going to set about to doubt everything that he could. He wanted to reestablish philosophy on the basis of uh, undoubtable logic. And so uh, he had to basically take all of his all of his assumptions and just keep doubting them and doubting them and doubting them until he got all the way down to the fact that, well, he was just sort of sitting there doubting things and he couldn't doubt that he was doubting. And so this became, uh, for Descartes, the new... Uh, the new foundation level, um, which we're familiar with it in its Latin version, so I'm going to give it in the French version first because he wrote it in both. Uh, je, uh, je pense donc je suis, or uh, cogito ergo sum, or I think, therefore I am. Um, and for him, thinking means uh, any kind of conscious activity that's going on uh, in a mind, you know, whenever you were. You are conscious of any kind of activity, sensation, uh, doubting, conscious, you know, uh, conscious mental discourse, emotions, any any of those sort of uh, mental phenomena of which we are conscious. He he, Descartes says that, that that's thought, and because I can't 
I can't doubt that I'm thinking, therefore I must be thinking, but in order to be thinking, I must exist. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, that's as far down as he could go. Um, and a lot of that, folks have pointed to an August, Augustinian influence there because the, the parallel Augustinian for, uh, formula, rather, if I doubt, there must be somebody doubting. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's, that's the new baseline. And then he proceeds to try to build up to, uh, build up to uh, an external world and observations about it from there. He does, he does um, so very unsatisfactorily, right? Um, I mean, even, even in his own day, there was a whole army of people who were poking at his syllogisms. Because um, <laughs> that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to erect a world on, on, on this scaffold of syllogisms at the bottom of which lies his inability to doubt his own doubting. Um some of those uh some of those syllogisms seem to be uh begging the question and the technical right. proper use of that particular expression um in that some of them seem to be circular some of them seem to have unstated uh um, unstated premises uh things of that nature but well he uses the ontological argument to prove the existence of god and then he says because God exists, we can trust some of our observations and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, that's that's the net. That's the, that's his next. Um, I guess kind of the next step in, in epistemology uh, that I would see in Descartes. Not necessarily the next syllogism, but but uh, I think in our discussion, the next idea is obviously he's he's set up this little internal world of mental of mental activity, but now he has to account for. Why it seems to be pretty daggum convincing that there's something outside of himself, um, but he he posits that you know perhaps I'm a brain in a jar. Oh, okay, uh, we haven't left the matrix yet. <laughs> um, he he posits uh, what if uh, you know what if I'm I'm a mind that's being uh, given sensations from the outside by some kind of some other mind that's just imposing upon me. Um, and therefore, giving me sensations that would lead me to false conclusions. Um, well, he 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 rejects that that particular hypothesis by one arguing for the existence of God based on the fact that he has an idea of God, which is uh, for him perfect being, and also he thinks that it's logical that part of perfect being is goodness, and if there is a good perfect God, that good perfect God would not. Uh, Equip us uh, and prov- uh, equip us to sense, and then provide us sensations that lead us to improper conclusions. And so, we can uh, we can, to a degree, uh, trust our senses to give us meaningful information about a real external world, um, because there is a good God who we trust to have done so. Anyway. Um, and, but if we go from there, we're getting into metaphysics because we have to start uh, talking about Cartesian dualism and we're not talking about metaphysics. We're talking about epistemology, <laughs> though f- I think for Descartes, um, it's a little bit of a, well, it's a little bit of a Reese's cup here. He gets his epistemology and his metaphysics. He gets his metaphysics and his epistemology and he seems to like the way that tastes. 
Is it, is it fair to say that the rationalists in particular privilege metaphysics over epistemology? Hmm. Hmm. I'll let you take that, David. <laughs> you mean the other way around? No. No, don't, you, don't. you don't. That, no, that, I'm, that's I'm saying the, the rationalist privilege metaphysics over epistemology. Okay. Um... Because but they, they seem to more or less assume their epistemology. They, they seem to more or less assume right. that it is what you can reason that is true or, you know, trustworthy. Well, and from I, there, they construct their elaborate systems of metaphysics. So it seems like yeah. epistemology in that formula has priority over metaphysics, Michael. They don't spend much time talking about epistemology, I guess. Is oh, no, that, I'll, that I'll agree that, with. That's what yeah, I'm that Maybe I'll I phrased yeah. the question poorly. Well, I, I think it's because the the the... the, the the rationalist who followed Descartes figure he did the heavy he did the heavy lifting mm-hmm. in in that regard and so they they keep going from there. Um, if you look at Ber- uh, Berkeley um, or Leibniz, uh, they 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 seem to assume a very similar epistemology to Descartes, um, but take it one step further. While um, Descartes could imagine being just a thinking mind with nothing outside of itself. Uh, Berkeley seems to have thought, that's a great idea. That's just going to be my metaphysics, except it isn't just Descartes' mind with ideas in it. There's just one big big mind with, with ideas in it, and that's God. You know, And so right. we're all little minds floating around inside of the big mind as ideas. So mm-hmm. it's ideas all the way down. I told um, my students if you have to live in a rationalist universe, Barclays is a pretty good one. <laughs> Compared to Descartes, you know, brain in a jar right. or uh, Leibniz's unless, unless whatever, <laughs> whatever you want to call Leibniz's bizarre universe. Right, unless you're a tree. Right, right. Right. <laughs> Sorry, that. Because then you'll fall in the forest and nobody will know. <laughs> yeah. Stop existing. But I, I don't know. At least that that's that's my read on Berkeley. Is it's not that that he just assumes epistemology and and therefore you know metaphysics is is what he much prefers it seems almost rather that he takes the epistemology of descartes and makes that metaphysics yeah what what i mean is neither leibniz nor barclay spend any time at all arguing for rationalist epistemology they assume it right yeah that is right. true that is true so right. I, I i probably used the wrong word when i said privileged well again this 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 may also be an artifact of um as much as we like to think that there's a break between uh, the medieval approach to philosophy and the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, um, I wonder if maybe uh, if maybe Berkeley and Leibniz are following in that very medieval tradition of just assuming that other guy got most of that stuff right, and therefore we're just going to build from there. Well, mm-hmm. and certainly people have said that Descartes is more of a medievalist than he is a modern. Because he mm. because he hangs so much on the ontological argument, right? Uh, well, but, but of course because that would make Alvin Plantinga so medieval too. <laughs> well, I don't think I don't think Alvin I don't think Alvin would really mind that much actually. <laughs> well, the um, so it, 
Anything more about these guys other than the the famous story of uh, was it Samuel Johnson who walked out and kicked a Barclay. rock in order to dis in order to refute Barkley? Yeah, <laughs> sorry, Berkeley. Yeah, yeah. That's it. I think it's pronounced Barkley. Is it pronounced Barkley? I've always that's heard how I've the, saying, that's how the Brits pronounce it. I've always I've always heard Barkley. Well, I've never spoken to a Brit about him, so I, I would not have known that. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the famous story because Barkley says the material world doesn't have substance, and so. Uh, so Johnson goes out and kicks a rock and yells, I refute Barkley. <laughs> Doesn't work that way. Actually, Barkley <laughs> is remarkably difficult to refute. Well, yeah. and, and, and that's precisely the problem. Right, because, because there's, there's no grounds of experience to which to appeal. All you can appeal to is reason. And Barkley's system largely holds together on its own, as does Leibniz's. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, but, and even then... You know, but I don't think Berkeley has any reason to suppose that he's not a brain in a jar being poked, except for the arguments about the goodness of God. Right. But I mean, these these are the problems with rationalism in general. Is is all the arguments need to do is be internally consistent. Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's lots of internally consistent arguments that nobody is actually going to buy. I mean, I, I, are, are there 21st century Barclayans? Are there people who, who believe mm-hmm. what Barclay believed who aren't? I, I suppose people who smoke a massive amount of weed might believe it while they're on the weed. <laughs> well, I mean, I could, I could propose that uh, all visible objects that are perceived by my senses are constructed uh, by an, an army of fairies out of out of nothing, like with no extension, they, the, the, the the fairies the fairies have no extension. Yes, the the these tiny um, you know in uh, mathematical point beings, which which I'm going to call fairies, construct all perceptible objects for me just as soon as I step within the range of being able to perceive them, and as soon as I disappear, they 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 uh, they take them they take it all down again. So the world is being created and destroyed as I walk through it and observe it. Yeah, and if if you can't appeal to experience <laughs> or the senses for your argument against that, there's no way to argue against it. Right. But because the rational because the fairies discount, made you too. Right. <laughs> yeah. Now I'm I'm probably going to reveal something psychologically about myself, David. But when I was probably nine, ten, eleven, twelve years old, I, I didn't call them fairies, but that was exactly my anxiety in my. <laughs> So you were you were a Barclayan? No, I mean in in my imagination it was actually uh, space aliens rather than fairies, but yes. Okay. And you know, uh, I always had this idea that you know someday I was gonna cut the wrong corner at the wrong moment, and I was actually going to see this alien ooze taking form. You're gonna step out into nothing. <laughs> so find a hole in the 3D rendering and end up in that weird anti-gravity black space that you step into yeah, 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 except you the, walk you know, through the bug in a video game. <laughs> except, you know, this was the uh, late 80s, so, I mean, we didn't have those kinds of video games yet, but yes. No, that's true. <laughs> but, I mean, it's utterly awesome. impossible to prove that fairies don't, cre- mathematical point fairies don't create the world when you walk into it. Just oh, like sure, it, I mean, that's, just that's like why it took so long for me to shake that. <laughs> just like it's impossible to prove with absolute certainty that anybody other than yourself exists. I mean, Descartes right. was right about it. His mistake is asking for absolute certainty, which is his criterion. Yeah. Anyway, let's move out of the morass of rationalism. Their loud voices. 
were countered by the even louder voices of the empiricists. Nathan, how did guys like Locke and Hume respond to guys like Leibniz and Berkeley, and why do you find a lot of empiricists today and not very many rationalists? All right, so I'll take those questions in turn. First of all, uh, if we think of Descartes as, you know, taking a turn back to Anselm's ontological argument, uh, we can think of Locke as turning to a radical form of St. Thomas's five senses philosophy. Uh, and for Locke, all knowledge, uh, all ideas, all impressions come through uh, sensory stimulus. Uh, the main power of mind for Locke uh, is not to filter those things through a pre-existing uh, set of categories that'll come later in philosophy, uh, but rather it is to find patterns in them. So for Locke, uh, the evidence that he gives for this is that mythological creatures are almost always a composite of the parts of animals that actually exist. Uh, and likewise, the gods in the old myths are either a composite of human and beast parts, or they are humans only more so, or more human than human, something like that. Anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so for Locke, uh, the idea that you have this ability to doubt everything uh, is basically baloney, because before you even know what the word doubt means, you have to acquire a linguistic system in which that word has meaning, and you acquire that by means of your hearing, or if you're deaf, through your, uh, through your sight, so on and so forth. Uh, so for Locke, I mean, it is a, like I said, a turn to the five senses as the place where knowledge is constructed. Now Hume, I've got to admit, he is my personal favorite skeptical atheist, uh, largely because he is so skeptical, he's not sure he's an atheist. There's a famous story that uh, he went to visit the atheists in Paris, and after his conversation with them, uh, someone asked him how it went, and he said, my, my, those Frenchmen are sure of themselves. <laughs> so, <laughs> he said, I'm, I'm not nearly sure, of things, sure enough of things to be an atheist. So anyway... Um, what David Hume said is that, you know, all right, let's take this uh, and really look at the way that we actually perceive things in the world. Uh, and he very famously did away with the idea of cause and effect because he says that when you actually see things happen in the world, you see a sequence of phenomena, a sequence of events, uh, you know, and it is only custom or habit that makes us call one of them the cause of the other one. So he says that you could see, uh, and I'll just go ahead and use billiard balls because that's the example everyone always uses. Uh, you could see one billiard ball strike another billiard ball and you could see someone take 70,000 billiard shots uh, and on the 70,000 and first billiard shot, all you would be able to say is what you saw in the previous ones. You wouldn't be able to predict with any certainty, and remember certainty is always important here, uh, that that one would behave likewise with one billiard ball striking another one and then rolling off in a uh, tangent direction. Because, because to do so, you have to be able to prove that the laws of nature are uniform, and you can't prove that. Right, right, because you can't be in all places at all times, and moreover, any successive moment that occurs means that you are in a different world. So, I mean, there's there's some affinity here, really, between uh, David Hume and the Greek philosopher Her Heraclitus. 
uh, insofar as you never step into the same pool hall twice. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, as far as uh, why there are more rationalists, or pardon me, more empiricists today than rationalists, uh, part of it has to do with the fact that the empiricists of today aren't really as thoroughgoing and consistent as David Hume was. Oh, very uh, few are. Well, I, and like I said, that's why he's my favorite empiricist. Um, because uh, David Hume, like I said, would say, uh, you have to be very, very sure of yourself to say there is no God. Of course, if you can write a book that says there is no God and you know make some somewhat related empirical statements, you can sell millions of copies of your book in the 21st century. So uh, this is something to where really the ascendance of the research university in Europe and America has given rise to a sort of cult of the scientist. And since the scientist in the popular imagination is an empiricist, uh, therefore the two have been connected. Now I would argue uh, that modern science is just as much a rationalist enterprise as it is an empiricist one, you know, largely because most of really cutting-edge theoretical physics, cutting-edge theoretical chemistry, cutting-edge theoretical science considered broadly, starts out with unproven mathematical theories yeah. uh, that have to be true if the premises are true, therefore it proceeds from a deductive argument, and therefore the evidence is only there to confirm what is already present in theory. Yep, so, I mean, it's one of those things where I think people misunderstand what Lockean Humean empiricism really is, and therefore, uh, for instance, on the television show Bones, which Michael, you and I watch and enjoy, uh, all of the characters run around calling themselves empiricists uh, and then look for evidence of what they already hold in theory. Right. But the the man so. the man on the street believes himself to be an empiricist if if he knows the terms yes, at all. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. And, and when you try when you explain Locke versus Leibniz to somebody, you know, they're going to look at you like you're an idiot when you talk about Leibniz. And when you talk about Locke, while they may resist some of what he says, they're going to largely agree. Right. Right. And really, I mean, you know, and I, I'm going to kind of segue into David's next question here. Really, modern science is more of a Kantian enterprise than it is a strictly empiricist enterprise. Well, that's a good transition. If Descartes is not <laughs> the most important figure in the history of epistemology, uh, Immanuel Kant is. He is called an idealist, but his idealism is of a completely different sort than somebody like Barclay. So what does Kant propose, David, and how does it relate to rationalism and empiricism? Well, Kant seems to, um, and he's he's living in the 1700s, um, even though he died in like just barely on into the 1800s. Um, so this is this is a, a couple hundred or uh, hundred hundred or so years after after Descartes. Um, I th- I think I look at looking at his project. It seems as if he's trying to find some way to to get the to get the two approaches together. Um, I mean, he 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 can't. He says a lot of things about the mind and the way it works. He does. Assu- he he 
assume some kind of a priori yet uh, that is uh, sort of existing knowledge um, in the mind, but he also wants to be able to say that uh, the bulk of what we uh, of what we have to deal with um, mentally, the bulk of our ideas uh, actually do come through the senses. So he seems to be trying to um, put them put them put the two together. Um, I'm going to uh, preemptively apologize to Dr. Waldrop, the uh, the professor at Southeastern Bible College, who way way in the way back uh, taught me Kant. <laughs> um, so if I get any any of this wrong, I'm so sorry, Doctor Walter. But Kant <laughs> is hard. Sorry. Yeah, seriously. Um, yeah, yeah, he is hard. <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, Kant uh, has one. He 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 points out the the distinction between what we sense. And the, ast- the the actual external phenomena which we perceive ourselves as sensing, he points out that these that these are different things. Um, Ding on siege. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, the you know the, what the thing that is in our head is not the thing itself. Um, you know when I'm looking uh you know looking at this book that's sitting in front of me right now with a lovely silhouette of Kant incidentally uh I don't know why but apparently they wanted to draw people as black outlines of themselves and he's got kind of a hunchback anyway um I'm looking at this book and I perceive it you know I have I have sensations of this in my mind but those sensations are not the thing itself they're uh, reflections on the inside of my eye that have been interpreted um, in some fashion um, into my into my consciousness. What I'm seeing is in my imagination. Reflection is perception. Right, right. So you know, uh, so there's. Uh, I remember Dr. Waldrop drawing uh, drawing this eye, and there's there's like a mirror on the inside of the eye, and what the mind looks at looks at is the mirror inside. Um, not out at the world itself. Um, so, uh, so one he he has this this epistemology that uh, that radically severs um, the world of the mind, uh, which is informed by perceptions, uh, from the external world, which we believe those perceptions derive from. Um, but now we have to do something with those perceptions, and he he, uh, he believes that this little internal world isn't just built up on uh, on observations. Uh, he's he's not of Locke's party in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he doesn't think that we can derive the categories uh, that are necessary to evaluate perception uh, from the perceptions themselves. That that doesn't make any sense to him. How can we how can we sort out these perceptions and draw any kind of uh, inferences from them if we don't already have some kind of system of inference right and and so he uh, and so he he suggests that the the categories of uh, the categories of logic the categories of analysis which uh, he proposes categories which uh, I believe are roughly analogous to Aristotle's Mm-hmm. He he proposes that these categories are 
built into the mind. We're 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 born uh, with a certain uh, a certain kind of knowledge, but for him, it's not it's not individual facts. Like I'm born knowing that uh, normal Doritos are superior to those new guacamole flavored Doritos. Um, <laughs> I'm rather born with notions of things like better or worse, or um, this is different from that. The capa- you know, the ability for something to be different, the ability right. for for things to be identical. One right? Dorito or several Doritos. Right. Ex- exactly. So these these are the kinds of things he he believes minds come into the world equipped with, because without that we wouldn't be able to make any sense of the perceptions that we get. David, doesn't he also um, say that that Space and time are like like the ability to uh, tell one Dorito from multiple Doritos. That that they're, um, they're facets of our understanding. That they're our priori knowledge. Yeah, he 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 suggests that the that the ability to perceive space, the ability to perceive time, and also cause and effect. Hello, Hume. Um, that all of those things are are part of the. I, I guess the pre-existing operating system mm-hmm. right. that that our mind has before before it even receives its first perception. Now, of course, he thinks that some of these things have to be awoken and fleshed out by interaction with the perceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, but these things are are in us; they're not in the world. And so, I guess this is. This is his way of dealing with Hume's problem of how we can see one billiard ball bump into another billiard ball, um, and we we infer causation not because we're, we've been able to observe every billiard ball hit every other billiard ball, but because the notion of causation is already in us. Mm-hmm. So that's... What I read when I read Kant, that mm-hmm. might not be the that might not be the thing itself. Yeah. <laughs> um, any, Nicely any played. <laughs> any, um, any if if I could add just one point of Nathan hates context. Kant. Everybody should know Nathan hates Kant more than he loves Jesus. I believe. Yeah, actually, I have read that somewhere that I that that's <laughs> true of me. You know, I wonder if they actually listen to this. They probably don't, or I would have heard about it by now. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, if I could add one point of historical context, I mean, Kant, uh, I've read in a number of places, although I've not read this uh, in Kant's corpus itself, uh, largely set out to write his philosophy as a bulwark against David Hume. He considered David Hume someone whose destruction of causality in the world was so dangerous that someone had to come up with a philosophy that could counter it in the imagination of Europe. K- kind of. In the Prolegomena Any Future Metaphysics, he, he... Okay, go ahead. He talks about Hume, and he talks about how reading Hume awoken me from my dogmatic slumber. Okay. So he seems to have been simultaneously energized and horrified by Hume. Like, there's things in him he clearly likes. So, he, so in he, other words, once again, I'm oversimplifying things. Well, he... he <laughs> He thinks that Hume successfully disposes of traditional metaphysics. Okay. okay. And so the prolegomena to any future metaphysics is, I believe, a quote-unquote popular-level summary of the critique of pure reason. I gotcha. So in those two works, what he's doing is not so much creating a metaphysics as 
explaining how in a post-Hume philosophical context a metaphysics is even possible and then other uh-huh. he, he leaves it to other people so he believes that hume was he must believe that hume was right about an awful lot and yet he does not want to accept hume's ultimate conclusions right he doesn't leave it there in other right. words right and you know uh piggybacking one other point on david's fine explanation of kant this is why i consider most people in the modern era to be or postmodern, whatever you want to call it uh, to be more Kantian than empiricist, because, for instance, uh, to go back to television police procedurals, uh, the detectives and the FBI agents and the side characters who are variously psychologically damaged figures, uh, <laughs> as far as I know, never spend any episodes standing around asking, uh, is it a valid inference that one event causes another? Uh, which is what they would be doing if they were true empiricists in the Humean vein. Uh, instead, they assume that singularity and plurality, extension in space, extension in time, cause and effect, all of these things they can just assume uh, as far as the form of knowledge, but the content of knowledge always comes uh, by means of sensory impressions filtered through that manifold of mental categories. Well, and they're also not philosophers. Well, I know, I know, but I mean, if we're going to put a letter... <laughs> they keep calling themselves empiricists, though, and it's not true. You should write a letter to 20th Century Fox. <laughs> yeah, well, Dear Hart Hanson. I mean, I'm not actually empiricists. I mean, I, I, I'm sure if you reached onto the, you know, philosophy shelf at Barnes & Noble, now that there are no more borders, uh, and picked up, you know, uh, Bones in philosophy. philosophy or CSI in oh. philosophy or whatever... <laughs> Someone has already made this argument. <laughs> I got. So I'm, now, I'm not going to waste my time with it. Now, now that I'm apparently the school's designated philosophy teacher, I got this catalog of books from some publishing company, and Dr. Seuss of philosophy was on it. Like they wanted me to use that for my class. That's great. <laughs> See, I didn't even like Dr. Seuss as a child. Really? Compared to a lot of kids' books, he's a lot of fun. Anyway, we have gone a little bit afield from Kant, unless you want to argue that Dr. Seuss is a Kantian, which I suppose no, you could. Maybe, maybe we'll all have to go pick up Dr. Seuss and philosophy. <laughs> well, Nathan, I already made you summarize the epistemology of the ancient world in 120 seconds, so now we are going to move beyond the Enlightenment and talk about modern and postmodern epistemology in a similarly compressed amount of time. What developments do you see in epistemology after Kant? And, all know, right, there's well... Many. First of all, you know, Kant is really sort of a watershed moment in Western philosophy. It's really after Kant that you get uh, distinguishable schools of analytic and continental philosophy. Uh, So if I can talk about those two really quickly with just two vaguely representative figures. uh, To represent the analytical tradition, the American philosopher C.S. Peirce uh, takes the project of, you know, Kantian-flavored empiricism and says, you know, all right, uh, philosophy, if it's going to say anything that is not sheer nonsense, has to be able to speak about things that have direct physical reference that are perceptible by means of the five senses. So you see uh, both the filter of the manifold operating there. So in other words, there is a an intelligible discipline called philosophy that is separate from scientific observation. But you also see that strong emphasis on 
well, the observation process, you know, the true statement, uh, must have some physical referent. Uh, now that obsession with the, I kind of tip my hat, what I think of analytical philosophy, uh, that obsession with the physical referent, of course, carries forward, you know, through the 19th century into the 20th, uh, till you get to figures like AJ Ayers, uh, Bertrand Russell, folks like that. And, you know, a sort of dumbed down version of that philosophy is really what animates, uh, what the popular press calls the new atheism. Uh, it's the idea that if you speak of anything that doesn't have a physical referent, uh, you might as well be talking about an invisible teapot orbiting just on the other side of the moon, uh, to use Dawkins' favorite illustration. Now, <laughs> the other side of that, growing out of Kant, is what gets called the continental tradition. Uh, if you know anything about ge- geography, you might think, what a strange name for a ph- philosophical movement. Uh, And you're right. I mean, continental, uh, basically in modern philosophy, signifies not analytical. Uh, So it's everything else. Uh, The representative figure from that tradition really is uh, Friedrich Hegel, uh, who is also very, very interested in perception. Uh, The first part of the phenomenology of Geist is all about the act of perception. He, He, oh my goodness, he goes through the act of perception in painstaking detail we're talking 150 pages about looking at grains of salt. Uh, through, to be fair, he goes through everything in painful detail. <laughs> oh, this is true. This is true. Uh, <laughs> and so for Hegel, uh, to give a short version of Hegel, which is very difficult to do, uh, what you've got is you know a very, very strong concern with observation still, but you've got a metaphysics that is more related to something like what Barclay would put forward, uh, namely that there is a world, the world moves in a manner that we call history. That history is given its shape by a, a happening in the world called Geist or spirit. Uh, and that human beings are basically the organ of the world by which the world thinks about the world. Uh, so in other words, he sort of does an end run around the epistemological problem by saying that we need to consider ourselves as part of the world that is the world's tool for thinking about itself. So therefore we don't need to worry about whether it's reliable or not, because whatever we've got, that's what the world has organically put into place in order to perceive itself. All right. So moving on beyond those two, go ahead, David. So he uses teleology to overcome the epistemological problem. Precisely. Uh, so, Moving on from there, uh, into the mid-20th century, one of the figures who makes science fun to talk about again, and someone, by the way, whom the new atheists ignore entirely, uh, is a philosopher of science named Thomas Kuhn, whose book, The Structure of Scientific Revolution, uh, basically gives the practice of science a robust sociology. Uh, And this is something that is very troubling to scientists of his time, like I said, roundly ignored now. Uh, But he says that if you look at the actual history of how scientific revolutions happen, uh, what you got is not a gradual accumulation of new sensory data that gradually changed the picture of the world. Uh, Instead, you've got people who come up with theories, and these theories generally don't have a great body of observation at the outset. 
instead uh you come up with the theory then you observe to see if it works uh in other words you know when you observe the world does your theory account for more sensory phenomena than the previous theory does and moreover he goes in uh, he takes an even more radical step to say that uh when one of these scientific revolutions happens because of these uh anomalies and because of these theories uh it is not that scientists are good reasonable people uh sitting in their gigantic offices getting huge stipends for not teaching any students at big universities <laughs> that was an editorial wasn't it uh but i want to have some fun find out how much our grad students make versus ours do anyway yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm sorry yeah <laughs> Uh, but instead, he he makes the assertion that for a scientific revolution to become commonly accepted scientific practice, there has to be an insurrection among the younger scientists, and they have to wait around for about an, a generation for the older scientists to die off. Uh, so, I mean, you know, the epistemological question becomes very thickly historical for Kuhn. Uh, later on, you know, I mean, he sort of retracts some of it and backtracks and says, I probably went too far. Uh, but that's a bell you can't unring once you've rung it. So uh, I still like P.S. Coon a great deal. The last point, and obviously I'm doing high points again, uh, is that uh, the emergent church movement, which we talked about in a very early episode of this podcast, uh, one of the phrases that often the big names in the movement, if you will, apply to themselves is epistemological humility. Uh, so it's one of those things where before I said, you know, this is a concern that really has its home in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Uh, but that's not entirely true because there are still uh, sociological, intellectual uh, moments in our own period that characterize themselves in terms of epistemology. Uh, so, for instance, you know, Tony Jones' recent book, uh, basically a a self-published edition of his doctoral dissertation, uh, he spends a fair bit of time talking about how the emergent church is best conceived of as a Christian movement uh, dedicated to epistemological humility. But, so it, it's not something that's gone away. Go ahead, Michael. Socrates encourages epistemological humility. There's nothing new about that. Socrates well, says No, no, no. What, what, what I'm saying is, I mean, for Socrates, though it was metaphysics and ethics that were first and foremost. What I'm saying is Tony Jones puts that at the center of the emergent phenomenon, whereas I made the claim earlier that people generally don't put epistemology at the center of things anymore. I see. But I, I was trying to provide an exception to that in the 21st century. Yeah, every, everyone does epistemology, all right? Everyone does ethics. Everyone does metaphysics. Everyone does logic, right? It's just that in different periods of philosophy, different questions become the governing questions. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's that's all I was trying to get at, Michael. I'm sorry. I, I wasn't. I wasn't, I wasn't yelling at you. I was yelling at Tony Jones through you. Okay. Well, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he can hear me over in a diner. Well, I I I was misrepresenting him, so I you know, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm not denying that other people have done epistemology. I'm just saying that in his most recent book. He puts epistemology in the center of things in a way that I would characterize as atypical of contemporary philosophy. What, is it, what does he mean when he says that epistemological humility is at the center of the emergent church? 
Uh, I mean, basically, it is as opposed to various evangelical and fundamentalist movements. So, I mean, one of the things that his book does is it makes the liberal emergence more normative than the more evangelical emergence. But practically speaking, what's he doing? Oh, practically speaking, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. (laughs) I was trying to do history there. Pretend I'm I'm William James here and tell me what difference it makes. There you go. And that'll skip Uh, our next question. There you go. I would say that uh, what he wants to do is, you know, distinguish himself from other Christian movements who try to assert certainty when it comes to theological claims. He's claiming that the real emergence, uh, the real emergence, according to Tony Jones, uh, are the ones who back off on truth claims and say, you know, these are the ones that are... uh, seemingly true uh but we're not going to make any sort of claims of certitude is that what you're after michael or that is, I... what, I'm, that is what i'm after okay all right because all right, epistemological I, I... humility my, my point is that could mean an awful lot of things okay fair enough fair enough mm-hmm. do you have anything, is there anything to, else you... you'd want to add oh go ahead sorry yeah i was going to ask david if he had anything else to add to the uh post-kantian uh not really <laughs> Not really. Um, I mean, except the notion that uh, personal epistemological humility um, isn't quite the same as universal epistemological humility, if that makes sense. Or even even communal or corporate epistemology, epistemological humility. Right, yeah. right. There's a difference yeah, between that, a person asserting authority and a, and a church asserting authority. Or a, I, I, I'm using my Swami powers here. David's about to quote G.K. Chesterton. Uh, well, I, I, I don't even have to now. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> and he stole your wallet. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, uh, I, I, I'm, I don't know. I think I'm, I may be rolling together Chesterton and a whole bunch of other people when I say that, um, all of us are way smarter than one of us. Um, and yeah, but. Anyway, yeah. Depends we on can, which all of us and which one of us. On. <laughs> well, anyway. I would add the pragmatist. I mean, oh, you okay, mentioned, yeah. you yeah, mentioned Peirce. Peirce not only kind of founds logical positivism, he also founds pragmatism, which goes in a completely different direction. And the pragmatists essentially say that if something doesn't have any practical consequences, it's probably not really worth talking about. And, and they don't say it in quite such a doctrinaire way as the logical positivist. So uh, let's say Leibniz is right and the universe is composed of monads that are all emitting from God constantly and everything is predetermined. What difference does it make? Well, it makes almost no difference. And so why bother about it? Which is kind of the way I feel about the predestination question. It doesn't really have any impact on the way anybody actually lives their life. So let's, let's not fight about it. I mean, I happen to believe in it, but I'm not going to fight about it. So, the, the the pragmatists are very sensible and very American in that way. They, uh, in fact, I believe James actually uses the the phrase "cash value" of uh, metaphysical assertions. Oh, wow! Yeah, yeah, as if as if he was trying to prove how American he was. But uh, much in pragmatism seems sensible to me until it until it you know eventually pragmatism just turns into absolute relativism. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you know, 
for a while anyway, pragmatism makes some sense to me. <laughs> well, a, uh, a question a lot of people ask, talking about pragmatism, when you try to bring up epistemological questions is, why does all this matter? Why do we even need to have this conversation? I would like to end today's show by going around the horn and answering that question to the best of our ability. Why study epistemology? Why ask these sort of questions at all? What difference does it make, if it makes any at all? Uh, let's start with you, David. Oh, my. Um, and I really don't want to scoop you guys. Um, but I would say that, f first of all, the, the issue of epistemology uh, matters um, because I am a Christian and because part of a Christian's duty in the world is to spread a particular message which makes claims about things that are. Unless you're Tony Jones, apparently. Unless you're Tony Jones. <laughs> um, it is also a message that uh, t that that the 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 scripture assumes um, thinking persons are to uh, are to hold with this I don't know particular kind of uh, activity or regard however you want to define it that that the Bible insists on calling faith and which uh, even though we may argue about what exactly faith is I'm pretty sure it falls under at least one of those things that Descartes would consider thought. Um, so if I'm, if I'm asked to believe that something, if I'm asked to regard something as true and to hold that true thing with faith, and on that depends some very important claims in scripture about things that are <laughs> metaphysically, teleologically, morally, ethically, um, Future of the world, Ickly. <laughs> um, then it seems to me that 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 my epistemology becomes incredibly important because it seems as if my faith seems to depend on something that I'm episteming, something that I'm something that I'm knowing and regarding in a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, and does the Bible itself have a certain kind of epistemology that it teaches or at least assumes? Um, I, 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 I think, you know, I think that's, I think those are, those are relevant questions. We can't just assume one because I think the problem is if we just assume one, the one that we're going to assume is probably going to be the one that's most directly tied to the age in which we live. Yeah. And, you know, as C.S. Lewis says in his wonderful, wonderful essay on the reading of old books, um, to, well, at least maybe to, to take that, that argument and apply it in a particular place, if we're using the epistemology of our own age, we're probably making the same kind of mistakes about knowing and about thinking that our age makes. And we won't correct those unless we look at the epistemologies of other ages. Because unfortunately, we can't look at the epistemology of future ages in order to do those same kinds of corrections. Right. <laughs> anyway, so I'm going to stop talking because I imagine I probably already said some things that, that you guys wanted to say. Well, Nathan, uh, no, because, yeah, what would you add? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do my typical Gilmore grumpy closing. 
Uh, I think of epistemology the same way that Plato thinks of politics. Uh, the educated person ought to learn something about them because everyone else does them so poorly. Uh, I think that, you know, in my own intellectual life, I mean, epistemology just isn't very interesting at all. I'd much rather be thinking about metaphysics and ethics and ontology. Uh, but there are enough people, as I said, who make just inane statements that make such rotten and faulty epistemological assumptions uh, that having a vocabulary to critique those things is very, very handy in the 21st century. Uh, so I would say, you know, that uh, epistemology for me is something that I study uh, so that I can have it in my toolbox when I need to pull it out uh, and so that I can get on to the much more enjoyable work of thinking about ontology, metaphysics, and ethics. Michael? Uh, I think you guys covered it pretty well. I especially liked David's uh, notion of historical understanding in, in order to correct the mistakes of our own age. We have to learn about the mistakes and assertions of other ages. And, and, and so epistemology is one of those things most people don't think about, and yet it informs everything they do. Mm-hmm. And so it is, mm-hmm. it's, it's worthwhile slogging through Kant in order to understand where the modern understanding of knowledge came from that you that most of us take for granted most of the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, well, um, yeah, and, and too, not to make the uh, not to make that 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 wonderfully modern assumption that some you know lo- teleological law of progress governs the development of epistemology over the ages, such that the one that we currently have necessarily rebuts and displaces the ones that have gone before even not, if that epistemology happens to be one characterized by humility not, not to be too Hegelian is what you're saying yeah <laughs> or Jonesian alright what uh, Nathan you're uh, you're at the helm next week what are we uh, what are we talking about oh my goodness I'm gonna have, can I do the grub sigh here <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I'd hear it from you. I thought you had a backlog of topics. Oh, good. I usually do, Michael. But honestly, I went into this morning's episode not giving a thought to the fact that I'm at the helm next time. So, listeners, look on the episode uh, show notes on Tuesday for what the next topic will be. And I, man, oh man, I I can't believe I just dropped the ball that way. Well, it's now happened no to two how of you. Happy I am right now, but not to me. <laughs> Well, tune in next week to uh, to find out what no doubt scintillating topic we'll be talking about. Maybe we'll just talk about what it's like to have a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> Since I'm sure that's all Nathan's been thinking about for the last 36 hours. Actually, I've been thinking about all the work I didn't do in the four days before the defense, <laughs> and I've been catching up on that. <laughs> it happens. Well, in the meantime, you can get in touch with us at our website, which is thechristianhumanist.org. Actually, I think it's just christianhumanist.org. Our email yes. address is thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. For Nathan Gilmore, for David Grubbs, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be strong. We'll talk on the streets as you may go solo.